Industry Pods and Evergreen Podcast Network are pleased to present the following podcast. This content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial or other advice. Nothing contained on here constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement or offer by Draper Gorenholm or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments whatsoever. And I'm, I'm like beyond excited for the, uh, the individual I have in the green room right now, uh, Rom Gary Gonzalou, uh, one of my personal favorite entrepreneurs, building some of the most incredible products uh, in, uh, in the NFT world, in the crypto world. Uh, and I think it it do me a better service to just bring him on and let him do his thing and like so that I stop talking. But before I do, really quick, shout out to Blockchain Radio, shout out to Coin Telegraph, um, amazing media partners. Uh, and this wouldn't been uh, been able to be happening if it wasn't for them. So, guys, go join meet.blockchainbooze.io. Go over there. Go go join the conversation live. I already see a bunch of people populating, letting me know what they're drinking, uh, where they're based. Uh, so without further ado, let me go ahead and bring on Ram. Ram, welcome to Blockchain and Booze. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. I need I need more excitement, man. It's it's five o'clock somewhere. You got you got your drink going, right? What are you drinking? Got a little bit of Blagobalin 16 right here. Uh, okay, but, you know, all right. Planning on going back to work, so we'll keep it uh we'll keep it peachy. We'll see. Fair, fair. We'll, we'll keep it PG for the time being. We'll see how the conversation goes and what rabbit hole we go we go down. Uh, but where where are you based? Where where are you right now in the world? Uh, Vancouver, Canada. Okay, cool. Uh, so I feel like even though we're all we're all far far away, we're all still connected uh, thanks to all these awesome platforms. So uh, let let's just jump into it. Okay, uh, you really don't need an introduction, uh, but for those who are not familiar with the Web3 world or haven't come, haven't come across your projects, give me a quick brief on uh, who you are, uh, what you're building. Yeah, so I'm the CEO of Dapper Labs. We consider ourselves you know, the first blockchain entertainment company. Uh, what that really means is we're using blockchain technology to build new kinds of products that, that people uh, couldn't build before uh, blockchain. So the, our first sort of product was CryptoKitties. Uh, it was one of the first times someone had taken blockchain and built a game around it. And um, it, it uh, we sort of talk about some of the details there. But more recently, we lost, we launched NBA Top Shot uh, in October of last year. Um, and it's been it's been a really awesome uh, journey so far. And, and kind of I think it shows what blockchain can be when you sort of put the technology aside and you really focus on delivering something for for the fan, for the customer. Um, and so we're, um, we're we're also the original developers of the Flow blockchain, something that um, lots of your your listeners, readers, watchers will probably be familiar with. But um, our base, you know, we're we're just super excited for everybody building new kinds of things on top of Flow, and and um, and it's going to be an awesome year. So um, good to be here and to uh, to talk about this these things. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have you on, man. And. I know like I first, so I joined crypto back in late 2017. I really got more involved when I was studying at my university and I was taking like a blockchain course and a smart contracts course. And I'll never forget the first encounterment that I've had with like one of the coolest like mainstream crypto applications was of course CryptoKitties, like a bunch of other people in the space. Uh, and I got to thank you for that because that inspired a lot of like my, my motivation, my movement to kind of discover, okay, what else is possible with blockchain technology beyond the currency, without, beyond the, the financial numbers themselves? So uh, 
cheers to you for that. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited for you to be here. Um, so let, let me get into my first question here. Okay. And I want to go like super grassroots. Uh, let's, let's kind of jump back to your, your childhood for a minute. Okay. Were you that typical like kid that was selling uh, lemonade or trading baseball cards or starting like niche businesses that you typically hear from, from like these narrative entrepreneurial narratives? Was that you growing up? Uh, yeah, but mostly online businesses. So it was sort of the late nineties. I was in high school and, you know, I tried building, it was the early internet. So similar to sort of the, the, what's happening now with blockchain NFTs and things, every new website was, was something cool. So I, I used to make, um, I used to write things about, uh, about things I knew uh, about and, and then refer people to, you know, Amazon books or serve ads based on sort of the content I wrote. And, um, I, 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 my childhood, I grown up in Dubai. And so I wrote a couple of guides on, you know, this is where you can go in Dubai and these are the books to buy and th these kinds of things. So that was sort of my hustle is, is affiliate marketing. Um, uh, and then, you know, I kind of kept that up in, in, in college when you know, it was sort of the first boom of online poker and, and these sorts of things. So was never able to scale it into a business, but sort of was personal, personal, um, hustling and, and, uh, and uh, it was good. It was a great introduction to, you know, all the all the aspects of running a company. But, um, but you know, it's something totally different when you try to team up with other people. De definitely. But how how old were you when you started doing that? Like, what was that initial age? I mean, I got my first computer when I was like nine or ten, um, and started like you know uh, doing the affiliate stuff when I was fourteen, fifteen, something like that. Um, so, yeah, so, 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 so no lemonade stands. Uh, and I, I also say like, I, I was checking out like your past work and, and you kind of like your, your professional journey, quote unquote. And I'd argue that it's not really on par with what you're doing right now as an entrepreneur, right? You double majored on the bachelor's level. You got, you got your master's at Stanford, both bachelor's and master's at Stanford. Uh, you also did research on the university level. Uh, and right away, you kind of transition into venture capital. It's 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 a path that you don't typically see from an entrepreneur as successful as yourself, right? Typically, you have the people in college uh, either tinkering or trying to raise money or trying to build products of some sort, those, those ideal narratives. And then straight going from university into venture capital, you typically have like consulting or investment banking background. But you just said like, no, I'm, I'm going to go study. I'm going to do research and go into venture capital like what was that process like? Uh, and like, why didn't you take the more entrepreneurial route post-grad and pre-grad? Yeah, I think it was a little more chaotic than that um, in the sense that, you know, I was so, so like I said, I was a kid doing affiliate stuff, making money. It was great. But I knew that this is not enough for me, right? Like, I don't want to be just a solo operator, kind of lone wolf. Um, and so in my head, it was I was going to go study biology. I wanted to go into biotech. Um, I wanted to start a biotech company, all, all of these things. And that was sort of the path that I had been on for, for years. And the tech stuff was just um, uh, what I did for fun uh, more, more than anything else. But even in you know, high school, et cetera, I considered myself, hey, you know, I like science and you know, physics and math and all, all this sort of thing, uh, rather than, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to go into stock market or I'm going to go into consulting. I just as a kid, that's not what interested me. Um, but, but when I took my first job at a biotech company, it was basically in 24 hours, I realized, wait a second, this, this is just not going to work because it's just way too slow. The people I'm working with are super smart, but 
I thought we're going to do these things in a matter of days or weeks. It's actually years or, or sort of, you know, they're thinking sort of a, a decade ahead. And, and I wanted to get more feedback, right? I wanted to learn more stuff faster. Um, and, and the venture role was really lucky. I, I, um, um, I was volunteering with a nonprofit. The chairman of that nonprofit was a managing director at this venture firm, Newbury Ventures. He uh, needed someone to come in and just like, you know, clean stuff up for him. So I was just a free intern for a little while. And I realized, whoa, this is the right way for me to learn how to work in a team because I can, you know, I was meeting dozen plus entrepreneurs every single day and, you know, as a kid, but it was just the best way to learn, best way to like look at interpersonal dynamics. Um, they started letting me make uh, seed investments. So that was when I first started, you know, 25K here, 50K there, and almost all of them went to zero. Um, but then something like Intercom, I was, you know, part of the first million dollars into Intercom and and you know that that kind of covers everything else over. So I learned sort of power law, uh, very sort of hands-on, right? And 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 that was that journey where it was started by working for free, you know, organizing emails and things like that. And it turned into I actually helped them start a fund, uh, Rising Tide, which is doing really well in, in crypto, um, and as investors in Apple Labs. Um, and then I realized I just gotta I gotta do it on my own. So I left in 2012, um, came up to Vancouver, started a company with my brother. Um, but you're right. It was very non-traditional. I didn't go raise money because the venture capital game is a little bit messed up because what they do is they sort of say, hey, come to me with an idea that's fully baked. I'm going to fund it and I'll kind of get pissed at you if you change your idea. But the reality is 99% of ideas uh, are wrong when you start start off with and the market sort of changes them. And, and so as a VC, I was seeing all of these companies um, and teams, great people, but they just held on a little too long. They pivoted too late. Um, the, the VCs didn't trust them after they pivoted. And it was just, that's a little bit of a waste. And so I said, I don't want to bet my, I don't want to be someone's lottery ticket, right? What I want to be is have my own destiny. And so what we started with Axiom Zen was a startup factory. And we said, look, we're going to take the same team and we're going to just run through a bunch of different ideas. So my CTO, Dieter Shirley, has been with me since 2013. Um, my head of engineering since 2013. Um, you know, my first, our, our first employee is still with us. He's um, helping with special projects, starting new things from from the ground up. Um, eight years, nine years later. So, uh, well, not 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 nine years yet, but um, but that concept of like we build shared muscle memory and we tackle multiple things, and and you know we we spun out multiple smaller companies. Um, you know, we built Routific to profitable uh, venture back company. We built Zenhub to profitability, and that's what gave us the confidence to start building CryptoKitties. Nobody would have funded CryptoKitties. Um, you know, I was crazy enough to say, hell yeah, let's, let's build that because, you know, why, why not? And we can, and, and sort of the asymmetric, um, returns make sense once you have sort of a, a safe bet, um, foundation to build on. So that was, that was kind of the, you know, very circuitous path, if you will. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot to, to unfold over there. I want to kind of jump into your time at AZ really quick, because that was the first time you really started going more towards the entrepreneurial route yourself uh, on a more like classic mainstream type of uh, type of level. Uh, when you're building this venture studio and you're incubating a lot of these companies, uh, how is that kind of reflected in your role and your position and your experience to kind of like what you're doing right now? Like what, like wh at what point did you kind of feel like, okay, I have the confidence that we've done this multiple times that like now it's time to move on. Like what was that process like? Um, you mean from Axiom Zen to CryptoKitties or to that? Right, product? right, yeah. To, to, oh. to crypto kitties yeah 
the, the market uh, pulled it out of us, right? Like I was able to spin out Routific because it wasn't my vision. And the, the our, our employee number two essentially became CEO of Routific. We raised money for it. It's now an independent company. Okay, great. Um, with Zenhub as well, we, we brought in an outside CEO. Um, it was profitable for several years. We recently raised, uh, he recently raised venture financing. And so it's, it's independent. Um, and so we could keep doing that. But CryptoKitties was this like confluence of it's a creative exercise. It's a game. It's a studio. But it's actually much, much more than that. It's a demonstration for what can come later. And what can come later necessitates a whole ton of infrastructure building. And it actually meant, you know, we had to kind of build the, the, the runway, the plane, the, the, the what's inside the plane, stuff the passengers in it kind of all at the same time. And that was I couldn't ever imagine hiring for that. How, who, what kind of. Do you hire a game studio person? Do you hire a infrastructure person? Do you, you, they just can't talk to each other. And so that it, I, I kind of had to parachute in. And um, so my brother runs Axiom Zen. I've been full-time on that prolapse um, since the beginning of 2018. But it was something that like the market pulled from us rather than us saying, you know, we had a good thing going, um, never raised any outside money. We controlled it um, 100%. And, you know, it was, it was a very... Um, uh, you, we dictated the, the the pace at which we moved, which industries we got into. We uh, we explored and 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 often got paid to, to do it. So it was sort of a very different uh, mindset than the venture capital uh, journey we're on now. Sure. And so, what was that? What was that aha moment for you in crypto? Like, when when did you first realize, like, shit, this stuff is powerful. Like, I could do something with this. What like what was that? What was that moment that you kind of discovered that? I mean, um, I could take credit and say, or I could I could pretend I'm smarter than I am and say it was back in 2014. So we tried <laughs> building on top of Bitcoin in 2014. You know, it was very clear back then, hey, this is something special, but it wasn't clear, like, is it, will it take 10 years? Will it take 20 years to sort of get, get to a mature application platform? Sure. But all of our businesses um, were based on kind of being a little cog in someone else's system, right? Routific is just a router optimization engine, DoorDash integrates that x integrates whatever hub sits on top of github and and means you don't have to leave github you can sort of program, program project manage in there and so that sensitivity to like platform risk and how closed platforms are actually worse for startups and worse for our customers because now github can stop someone from using zenhub even if a zenhub customer wants to use it that's freaking bullshit um that kind of concept of hey crypto can solve that and it can mean that you know applications can sort of interplay with each other the, the 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 tease was sort of in in the back of our minds, but it wasn't clear until we saw hats on cats, um, and and that was sort of end of 2017, so or, or beginning of 2018. So a team built crypto kitties, built kitty hats for crypto kitties, um, and it was like, wait a second, we can't even stop this if we wanted to, and and that that like the the realization that crypto is the future fabric for all software or all peer-to-peer um, -peer interconnected online uh, things that have value um, came pretty late um, after sort of, Hey, we should buy some Bitcoin um, like years <laughs> after. So got you. <laughs> got you. So you also, you also talked about how you, you didn't want to go or the, the venture route is investors put money into you on a certain idea. And then most of the time companies pivot, right. And they go on new ideas, you lose trust. Is that something you experienced when pushing out crypto kitties? Like, did you come to that that environment? You're like, we have this idea that we want to execute on, and then after a lot of reiteration, it actually pivoted to what we know as crypto kitties today. Or was it off the bat like you knew like this is what it's going to be? 
No, it was super different. Um, but we controlled Axiom Zen 100%. So we didn't have any outside investors in Axiom Zen. We funded CryptoKitties completely. And so basically it was, you know, Dieter, Shirley, our, our CTO, and Mac, our, our chief creative officer at the time, was coming up with random ideas and then and then kind of either executing them or if you th- like, it was all about experimentation. So the CryptoKitties team was two people for a month, month and a half, just iterating every single day on whiteboards. And then it was two more people just iterating a smart contract. Then it was three more people. And we just did sort of paper prototypes or alphas with uh, a weak front end. And it wasn't until ETH Waterloo, a month before we launched it publicly, that we we ran the first sort of um, alpha without a front end. It was just smart contract and then a really weird uh, admin interface for interacting with it. Um, and then we put the team put um, um, stickers of CryptoKitties on Pokemon cards to like show, hey, this is for collecting and this is what you do with them and you know this kind of thing. And it was still a team of six at that time. Um, and they got back on a they got back on that Monday and by Tuesday we forex the team to um, uh, to yeah, 18 or so people or three X team um, and actually delivered the entire front end, back end sort of feature set um, within within a very, very short amount of time. So that's kind of what Axiom Zen was really good at is is chip, 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 and then go hard. And then what we did with um, Dapper Labs is realize, hey, we need platform people. And so we took, you know, we took the CTO from Zenhub um, and put him on the scaling team that eventually became Flow. Um, in addition to Dieter, we took 30, 40 people out of the Axiom Zen sort of ownership. And day one, Dapper Labs was 40, 45 people. Um, so it was kind that's of amazing. Kind that, of intense. That, that, that's pretty, yeah, it is pretty intense. I remember specifically during that time, the, the ETH network was completely clogged and <laughs> transaction fees were out of the roof. And I remember in my smart contracts course, we were like talking about that and how you can overcome that and what, what that would entail. So I remember that moment very, very specific as I'm sure a lot of, a lot of other people do. So let's, let's kind of like transition into the NFT side of things. Obviously you, you guys are building incredible stuff. Uh, you have Flow Blockchain, uh, you have NBA Topshop, CryptoKitties, you have everything that's probably incubating that we don't know about within Dapper Labs. Uh, so what would you say is the current state of NFTs? And I'll, and I'll leave it at that because it's like, a, it's a very, very like general type of question, but I, I'd love to pick your brain on that. The current state of NFTs, how do you view that right now? I think we're in the experimentation phase. Um, I think we're out of the sort of super holy crap, like what are we doing? Like people are starting to understand, um, but people are going to experiment with a whole bunch of different things over the next three to six months. Um, you know, I also equate it to sort of the dot-com bubble in the sense of every new dot-com website was really exciting to people. And it was this idea that just because it's pets.com and it was the first com that was dealing with pets that it would automatically be huge and it's sort of that mindset was very prevalent and it sort of is today right it's it's the first you know whatever nft and so therefore it'll it'll kind of be and and you know sometimes that's the case right if if websites did have value and could be tradable and a lot of those dot coms are, are are very valuable so um but but you know what ended up today we actually interact with the internet mostly through web applications and it's mostly products like Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is that have growth loops that bring us back um, that that keep most of the attention. And we think that the same is going to be true, you know, five years from now is they're going to be blockchain enabled applications that still a bunch of what they do is off chain. A bunch of what they do is about bringing users back, you know, sending them emails, sending push notifications, whatever. But the user has portability and can take their stuff 
um, from application to application, their identity, their assets, their money, whatever, whatever it is. So like, I think, I think that's where we are is like, everything is new now and that's, that's great. And we're going to see a ton of experimentation. Um, and then ultimately it'll be kind of, you know, as easy to create a new NFT as it is to create a Facebook post or a Twitter, Twitter post. And so then it's about what, um, communities can actually bring engagement, drive value, uh, have things that people will be interested in, um, no matter what. And, and of course it will be thousands X more, more people in the sense of, you know, we're still just scratching the surface in, in terms of who has, who's even been exposed to these things. Right. And I think you, you put in a very good, uh, good light that back in the dot-com era, people were just launching dot-com for dot-coms for super niche uh, type of problems to be solved like pets.com. And I think we're seeing that right now with a lot of NFT platforms. Uh, and there's a lot of new niche NFT platforms for like reggae or for sports or for music. And I know Binance just launched one and announced it today. Uh, what do you think is that secret sauce for staying relevant? Like, uh, like, uh, do you think there needs to be so many NFT platforms that are kind of specializing in specific niches or should there be just one centralized hub that are dominated by a few players? Um, so I think naturally decentralization and openness will lend itself to, um, decentralization and, and, uh, and, and having more kind of fraction, not necessarily efficient, because if you think about it, a lot of those communities can actually be interconnected with each other in terms of the marketplace liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it makes total sense because of that, that in a decentralized world, everyone will be able to interact with the, the sort of the state of the universe through whatever interface makes sense to them um, and whatever platform, whatever. And so there can be kind of infinite varieties, um, almost like Twitter back in the days where before they stopped, before they started locking down their clients, right? Some people would use TweetDeck, some people would use whatever, TweetBot, I forget the names. But um, so that's, that's what I think is sort of inevitable is you're going to have lots of different options and that's great for the customer. Um, um, but of course, as with most things, you know, they'll sort of the, the, there'll be a power law distribution where most act, most activity will be um, in, in certain areas. Um, I think specialization is essential right now because nobody's figured out what is a sustainable model other than, you know, there's crypto art where you're it's like Patreon, you're supporting the artists. I fully believe that. I think that's just mind blowing. That'll survive forever. There's a little bit hypey, lots of speculation, but that it makes sense from a business standpoint. There's sort of things, collectible economies like Topshot, um, I think that makes tons of sense. We 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 launched the product in the bear market, um, and we're we're there's many comps with sort of video games, trading cards, so on, so on and so forth. Um, and then there's like things you know, things like merchandise shouldn't as shouldn't appreciate in value, and is that okay? And I think that is right. There will be categories of NFTs where if you're buying a, a hat, just like you're buying it at a, a, a stadium, you know, if you're buying it for a dollar. And it is, it is limited edition, but you shouldn't expect that it will be $100 from a few months or years from now. Um, you might be able to resell it for 20 cents, but that's still better than, you know, what, whatever it is. Um, and then there will be sort of categories. But what is the top shot for music? What is the top shot for, for movies? That sort of thing. I don't think people have figured it out. And I'm, I, for one, just really want to support entrepreneurs and, and see, see, what, see what people like. So is that, is that kind of see what you, you see what Dapper's role is, is creating the, the top shots for every single category, creating the top shots for, for sports. No, what, what, what like, what's the, what, what do you envision in the long-term kind of perspective is over here? 
I think Dapper's role is very simple. We will do sports highlights-based collectibles, and and I think that's where we'll bring, a, you know, there's 2 billion sports fans in the world. We want to bring 2 billion of them and put give them Flow wallets, give them Dapper wallets, and and then people and we then we want developers to build new products and services for them and and that's kind of the that's it and so we want we see ourselves as wanting to support developers and to a certain extent no matter where they're building even if they're building on ethereum or something we believe in a multi multi-chain future and there'll be asset portability and all that all that sort of thing so we're definitely 1000 percent not trying to build you know top shot for music um, we're working with tons of music artists, Kanye, Nas, um, you know, so, so many folks are on our cap table, uh, Warner Music, et cetera, but we're working with, we're investing in companies that are going to help them uh, do the right thing and, and sort of build something their fans will like. We don't have the capacity to. So we're focused just on like the Top Shot style products as well as just platform tooling that everybody can use um, and then bringing our users, you know, million plus Dapper wallets and, and, and Flow wallets um, actually bringing them to different consumer apps um, so they can try new things. And, and, um, and then we want to see, you know, what people like. I think, I think it's super interesting because obviously CryptoKitties was quite frankly, the most mainstream thing that we saw back in 2017 spark accord with a lot of the people, probably more crypto native people. Now we're seeing NBA top shop getting recognized by people like my brother, who is not crypto native, but just loves the NBA. And it's a new way for him to fall in love and to be passionate about something and to create more engagement and feel closer to his, his top players. Right. Uh, and obviously that sparks a lot of attention from other artists, a lot of creators, to create their own NFTs, you know, Gary Vee is launching his thing that he's been pushing out on Five Five that he's been that he's preaching like I'm going to be creating NFTs for generations to come. And you have a lot of artists kind of dabbling and doing cash grabs. But when you pitch these people on your cap table, how do you pitch them a narrative to create NFTs for five, 10, 20 years to come, and like creating full encompassing experiences beyond just a one sell off type of thing? Yeah, I mean, look, there's. Um... I think it really also depends on people's communities. Like certain communities are very receptive to experimentation and they're like, yeah, do a cash grab. Like we love it. Just see what you want to do and, and we'll, we'll support it. And it's sort of experimentation. Um, the, when I talk to folks, like most people come to me saying, Hey, I don't want to do a cash grab. I really want to protect my fan. How do I do something? Like I don't need the money. How should I engage with this technology? That's sort of the attitude of most um, people sort of at the very top of their game. And I think, and I think the reality is like that that's the right way to think about it. And, you know, how to interact with your fans is what, do you, what gets you, you the person, right. Whether it's the star or whatever, if you get excited about it and you're going to get on your social and like, just, just be amped about something, damn sure your fans are going to get amped about it. Like that's, that's by definition. So if it's something your agent's going to do and you know, you're going to be, you're not even going to know it happened. That's bad. That's a cash grab. If it's something you're personally involved in, it almost doesn't matter what it is because if you're personally involved in it, your your fan base is going to love that. So maybe for your fan base, if it's authentic to you, it might be watching you, you know, fucking work out, right? It might be, you know, having a live stream, whatever. It might be, you know, get a sign, you know, whatever from me. So, so I think it's it's just totally different based on the the thing and and the person has to be involved. So like, you know, we we um, we worked through Basic Space with them, um, and they brought Naomi Osaka and Mary, Mary Osaka, Mario Osaka, and you know they they joined us on a on a clubhouse. They they rarely do public appearances. This was really important to them. This you could tell, you know, the the drawings themselves were really important to them. So like, 
that's something you know is a piece of their history that they will care yeah. about five, 10 years down. And if they will care about it, then their fans will care about it. And so it's almost like abstract, but like if, if you boil it down to that simple, like, oh yeah, okay. Like, oh, I don't want to be involved in that thing. I'll just let my agent do it. I'll take a check. It's not a real, uh, not a real initiative. Yeah. Are they, are they concerned at all that their audience probably being not so crypto native will have a hard time understanding and buying, or are they relying on existing users like more crypto native people to to purchase the stuff and interact with their content like do they have those types of qu concerns questions fears like what kind of goes on through their, their heads and bringing in more normies kind of thing into into crypto yeah the, absolutely i mean i can tell you look like i can't speak for everybody um but a lot of the perspective is the reason to launch on these existing platforms is to attract you know a new class of fan that has you know higher willingness to 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 sort of pay and and, and this, to attract the crypto fan um the conversion funnel of most of these products means that if a you know if i'm you know x artist i'm posting on my instagram the percentage of my normie fans that can go to the link in my uh bio understand what the hell a drop is what they're even buying whether it's credit card or not like if and it's not credit card, then it's freaking impossible, right? Then it's the CryptoKitties one sort of conversion. But even if it is credit card, what am I buying? When is the drop? What time do I show up? Oh, it's sold out instantly. Like, oh, it's only for two minutes. Wait, I showed up three minutes late. Like the complexities are such that it's just not accessible to an average artist's fan base. And so it's just physically not right now possible to sell something that your average fan buys. Um, that, that's going to change very, very quickly. Um, and then it's a question of, well, you know, how do you do pricing, quantity, all of these things? But, you know, most of the models are just like streetwear, right? Or, or sneakers, or that's kind of the model is, you, you know, it's a limited edition drop. It's going to sell out quickly. It'll pop on the secondary market. It just is what it is. And so if people buy it on the secondary market, expecting to 10X from it, like imagine if people do that with a sneaker or with the latest Supreme drop, it's kind of their fault, right? It's sort of, it, I made something cool. It, it went up in price. People bought it because they wanted it. Right. Um, and some people bought it because they didn't want it. They wanted to resell it for higher and they got stuck with it. And sort of that just is what it is. And that's the core thing of like, are you building the thing because your fans want it? Or are you building the thing because you want to create a speculative asset and then through your posts and stuff kind of, you know, pump or, 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 you know, not pump that asset. Like it's just a totally different perspective of what is the NFT for? Yeah. No, it's super interesting. I, I want to kind of jump into uh, your, the product that you guys, uh, specifically NBA Top Shop. Uh, one of the things that I find most fascinating that you and your team have done is kind of look at Ethereum, look at all these other blockchains and be like, this shit doesn't cut it. Like where we're at right now doesn't freaking work. Like we need to create our own damn blockchain to make what we want a reality. Uh, and I really admire that because that's like super going against the grain and you know that crypto community, like the maxis, were coming at you with their pitchforks and their fire. And they're just like, are you crazy? You can't do that. That's against the rules. That goes against the ethos of decentralization. But I think it's very critical with onboarding this new, this new, uh, I guess, audience, uh, non-crypto and making them more crypto native. And I absolutely love that, that you guys did that. Uh, when you guys were actually going through that initial thought process, because I read somewhere that it took about a year to make that a reality and to bring flow into fruition. What what were some of the biggest challenges or concerns that kind of went through your head throughout that process? 
Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, we built Flow basically twice before building it for real. And so the first one was, are we missing something, right? The core insight behind Flow, Dieter actually had it very, very early on in the CryptoKeys days of, wait a second, why is every single node in the network doing exactly the same thing? Couldn't you just use some specialization and have consensus happen over here and then have a smaller group that, that's more powerful do it over here? But that like, A, the idea sounds pretty simple. And so the first step is, hey, why has no one thought of it? Why is no one thinking about it this way? What what are we missing in it? So we brought on advisors like Dan Bonet at Stanford. We brought on folks that had built blockchains like, you know, CTO of various uh, uh, blockchains that, that were technologically strong, but maybe didn't catch market adoption or folks stopped for regulatory reasons. We also talked to Vitalik, we talked to Dan Larimer, talked to the Pocotalk team, talked to Silvio, um, you know, and and sort of tried to realize, hey, what it, where is everyone coming at it from? And why are they not thinking about what we're thinking? And the reality was nobody was even, you know, no one was trying to solve the set of problems we're trying to solve. So it's very clear why they're not even worrying that, you know, sharding is a problem or parachains are a problem or layer two or any of these things. And so, uh, so that was sort of step one is, are we missing something? Step two was, is it going to work? So we built the whole thing in Python, um, which was sort of just the fastest way we could, we could get it up and running, um, pushed it into a sort of demo. And then back then it only had two types of nodes. It was just consensus computation. Um, and then just had it running for a while. And it's like, wait a second, this, this kind of works. Um, that's when we actually sort of started thinking about um, a token, how would that work? And, and, you know, can we, for months we went through can we do it without a token because you know it was, it was ico mania and we said well if you can do it without a token isn't that like better than any other blockchain out there because no one can compete with free uh, but it was just so hard to try to solve the sort of civil resistance and and the anonymity and you know, all of the problems all the reasons you need a token <laughs> and so we needed a token um and then then and once we had the designs we basically Around it was around that time we actually signed the NBA as well, or at least came to verbal agreements. And so we said, okay, we've got our flagship app, we've got our flagship IP, and we've got the technology, we've got the white paper, technical specs, everything's fully complete, prototypes running. Um, boom, let's sort of raise the first round of financing that that is kind of intended to convert into the token. Um, and and you know, and, and that was sort of May 2019 or so. Um, so there, there, there's two things I want to dive in really quick. Uh, one, the NBA verbal agreement. Uh, and, and two, you really have a knack for bringing on some of the best people uh, and advisors and investors and getting them excited. How do you do that? And that's like one of the hardest things to do. Like, how do you get people uh, excited about an idea, about a concept, about a problem that you're trying to solve without really having much to show of validation of some sort? Like, how, how do you get like you as a CEO, what, what, what traits do you kind of apply to get people excited on that on that level? Well, I mean, the biggest thing is I I, I, uh, I fail a lot, right? Like I, I, I take a lot of swings. Um, and in the sort of three years that that we've been building this thing, most people thought we were nuts. Most of my friends, many of my family are kind of like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> um, and so it was, I, I give credit to the people that believed in us um, and actually said like, wait a second, you might be nuts enough. Uh, that that this might actually actually work, and I I don't know. I mean, I I, I give a fair amount. I, I think it was very hard for us because we were so non-traditional, and everyone wanted to be in a box. And 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 I don't know how I got around that. I mean, one just an amazing team and just people to point to and say, hey, look, it's not just me. You know, talk to Dieter, talk to Mick, talk to people building the products, talk to 
you know, um, uh, uh, the game designers who quit their high paying jobs and are, you know, Stanford PhDs and deeply believe in this stuff. So I brought old, I, you know, brought my team in. Um, and then maybe like the other one just being like more common sense or practical rather than like fundamentally, we believe in open platforms, we believe in decentralization, that's where we're going. Um, but you got to get started where the customer isn't terrified of the products you're asking them to use. And so that's just such a rare perspective in crypto where you're you're, you're both committed to the end destination, but you sort of realize you got to start somewhere that I think, I don't know, the, the people that loved us loved us very early and, and the people that didn't love us, I didn't spend a lot of time on. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Uh, back to the NBA uh, uh, agreement, because that's one of the dopest partnerships that I've seen in bringing something mainstream. Uh, where were you when you kind of like got the uh, okay, the approval? Like, in, like, were you jumping? Were you going crazy uh, knowing that this would kind of like be the perfect use case? Trading cards, digital collectibles for one of the largest communities in the world. Like, what? Where were you when you <laughs> when you heard that? Yeah, I don't remember where where I was to be honest. Um, so it wasn't a big deal. And it was like, oh, great, another partnership. <laughs> well, I mean, we were we've always been of the perspective that. Um, it's about the ecosystem, not about any one product. Um, and, um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, there was always that. I was also a little nervous, to be honest, um, with, you know, I've worked with big IPs before. I've worked with Fortune 500s before. And it's a little nervous of, okay, we're a startup. We've got to deliver this thing in a year, year and a half. Um, can we move fast enough? Can we get approvals enough? You know, they got to deliver all these videos. Can, can they do it? So there was a little bit of like, this is really cool, but holy crap! Now we got to Now we got to deliver. Um, and, <laughs> and you know, I think, I think, I think we all remember that. And then the other thing was, okay, now we got to build Flow, and Dapper, and all at the exact same time. Um, sort of the plane, the runway, the, the the seats in the plane. And so it was it was a little bit of a sort of sobering moment, rather than a, you know, let's go get drunk moment. It was more like <laughs> okay, now we got a lot of work. Um, but it was it, it was amazing. And since then, I got to say, I mean, the NBA has just been. Um, the, the best partner you can imagine on this side. You know, they've been collaborative, they've been hands-on, they've been um, understanding, they've been patient, um, and and they've you know helped both create a lot of value for themselves, but I think for the fan. And that's always that's one of the biggest things I've been impressed. Like compared to a tech startup, the way that sports leagues think of their fans is much more personal, much more empathetic, much more. You know, I, I think it's very cool, and um, and so I'm, I'm very proud to be doing business with them. I mean, it's a super emotional thing. Sports is like one of the most emotional things you could kind of align yourself with. Uh, it's like the ultimate cult uh, uh, pyramid top that you could reach, right? Uh, but I'm curious, why why the NBA first? Why not the NFL? Why not the NHL? Why not first the UFC? I know now you're working with the UFC. Like, why was the NBA, like, why did you want to go for, after that audience first? Well, I mean, NBA is just... Perfect, right? The um, for 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 one reason because, look, NFL is is the America's biggest sport, but but they they're very open. Hey, we we want to be the best. We don't want to be the first. Uh, NBA wants to be the first, and that's just that entrepreneurial mindset. Of, sure. Yes, we'll let you sort of do something no one was ever done before. What is an NFT? Okay, we'll actually put lawyers that are taking it seriously and trying to understand it. Is is it's very rare, and they had a they have they have a well deserved amazing reputation for that. Um, I think we could have definitely worked with other leagues as well, but NBA is so much more than a sport, right? It's a piece of culture already. It's it's music, it's fashion, it's 
it's just everything kind of combined. And so I think it's it's it was our dream to start there. And I think it's um, uh, and I think you know, and the people are so just digitally native, right? Like I get tweets, hey Rohan, put it on the top shot. Um, you know, the commentators are saying, hey, that's that's a top shot. They're the 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 league management is announcing you know the rising stars roster they announced it as a, a top shot pack and and that was and right now we're sort of in quiet mode so that it's just really cool to to have a partner that's being that um that hands-on and, and obviously now that it's demonstrated it's a clear playbook you can sort of point to and and you know it's you can scale it but um i think they've been amazing as sort of partners to discover it's fascinating, and I'd love to hear more about how hands-on were they when it came to building the the actual product, the video reels. I know they sent you obviously the files, right? And you guys created products around that, the the cube and integrating the the sports logo and all that. But were were they like heavily involved when it came to that, or was it more of like just send us the videos, we'll create something cool, we have this product that we that we want to kind of execute on, and then we'll pitch you the vision on it. Well, look, like formally they have approval rights and and you know we do formally we do the design they have approval rights this this sort of thing um practically speaking they know their fan better than better than uh we do at this point i sure. think we, we know them really well so we did involve them really deeply in uh every aspect of the rollout whether it's the communication the, the, the this sort of thing but the principal way i think where we really lean on them is um, the videos, the the actual moments within the sport, how we talk about the players, how we frame, you know, and and uh, and make sure that everyone's being shown in the best light. Like that's where, that's where sort of is their expertise. Where when it comes to you know the product features, growth, uh, prioritization, uh, pricing, economy design, that that's our expertise, and so that that's sort of where the responsibility lies. Got you. And and how many iterations did you guys go through before you came to the like this is the product. This is the one that people are going to go crazy over. Um, you mean the actual sort of collectible, or the right? Thing? I guess I guess the the collectible being the main part, but also the whole experience on on shopping for a, a top shot is very unique within itself, right? But let's let's take it first from the point of view of the actual cube, like the collectible itself. Yeah. Yeah, it took a while. Um, I think we at least three months, I think it might have been up to six months of sort of experimentation. I mean, we started even before we signed the deal. So it was a fair amount of fair amount of experimentation. But 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 the actual kind of cube concept was one of the earlier concepts. We just went really wide and, and weird sort of, you know, new age and, and all these things. But um, we kept coming back to something that is new, but tangible. It's sort of mm -hmm. VR, but also in real life. You know, you can imagine holding it in your hand. And, and, and that 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 I think was important. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, let's talk about more of the growth behind AZ, uh, behind Dapper Labs. Uh, what, what's your approach for recruiting? Like, how, how do you build that that system to go from one day you have like two people in the office and then next day we're, we're, we're a team of 18? Like, what, what? Like that's unheard of. I mean, that's the first time I've heard of something like that. What's your approach uh, when bringing on talent to the team? Well, that that one was um, very much a feature of Axiom Zen. So we just deployed people from existing projects, and and we could kind of, you know, that was the whole idea is we could like really flex from from one project to another, and we hired very flexible people that that loved doing that. Whereas, what I've learned since is most people don't love doing that. So so we're now letting people kind of focus if they if that's what they if that's what they want to do. Um, but certain people, you know, hate focusing, and they want to kind of they want you every week to come to them with a new thing. So anyway. Um, so that was the, um, sorry, what was the specific question you asked? 
Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, like, how do you approach uh, recruiting? Like, how do you find top tier talent? What, what are the guidelines you kind of look for? And how do you move so fast in doing so? Um, so right now, I mean, we've scaled faster than we ever have right now. We've hired um, like a dozen VPs in the last, uh, you know, 30 days or so. And all of them are just incredible, incredible people. Um, you know, the, the common advice is you need a recruiter and you need to outbound and no good people are looking for a job. And what we've seen is that's bullshit. If you are accessible enough and you make your philosophy, your vision, the way you like to do business visible enough, the people that want to work with you will get in touch with you. Um, and many times it's through your existing team. I mean, we're big enough where um, m most of our new hires are actually referrals from existing hires, whether it's the newer people that sort of hit the ground running or, or others. So referrals are super important to us. And then we do pay attention to people that apply. And it's it's really hard because, as you might imagine, the noise is, you know, there's so many just resume dumps and stuff like that. But we get so many smart people that send in the resume and then keep tweeting at me until I notice it. And then it's sort of, oh, my God, you're, you work where and you're doing what and you want to do what with us? Yes, obviously, let's, let's come talk. So those are sort of the perfect outcome is like when someone's inspired by one of our products and then looks into our company and says, hey, I want to work with you. Um, that's been fantastic. So we haven't really had time yet to kind of go ahead hunting and say, you know, this person would be perfect. Uh, but we, what we also do, you know, we have more than 100 people um, on, our, on our cap table. We keep telling them, hey, these are the people we're looking for. If someone, you know, in your network reminds you of this, tell them about us and, and put us in touch. So referrals, I guess, is my sort of short, um, yeah, short sure. answer. But, but, um, but yeah, I don't think there's a one size fits all. It's just is dangerous. Hire a lot of mercenaries really quickly. Right. Is there, what's the craziest story of someone like trying to target you for for a position on Twitter? Because that's that's like a unique way to do it. I haven't really heard of that. So, I, like, does that happen often, or is that like a type one type of thing that you that you saw happen? Oh, I mean, people hustle. I mean, you know, people yeah. find that <laughs> this. Uh, a couple of folks have run like Twitter giveaways where they're asking others to tweet at me for on their behalf. That's been incredibly uh, not appreciated, but but I'm giving him an interview, so it worked. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll see. I haven't told him yet. Maybe if he's watching, he, he, <laughs> nice. Uh, I I want to I want to jump more uh, into some more fun questions here. Okay, uh, and we're we're coming close to our time. We only have a few more minutes left. I want to be respectful of your your time obviously uh so we see sneaker culture we see uh music we see sports art fashion gaming uh fun collectibles really gaining like really viable traction with nfts five years from now what are some of the more surprising nfts you imagine people trading um i think five years from now you'll see a lot more around like utility and, and access and and sort of things that that have not even necessarily financial value, they have more utility value. So that I think quantity-wise, that will probably be the vast majority because it'll be you know free to transact them. And so you can buy things for cents and then and then resell them. So, so I think quantity-wise, that'll be much. I think the most interesting things will things will be things that live across uh, physical and digital worlds. So like a dress that I can wear in Fortnite. Uh, I mean, not me personally, but or, although in Fortnite, I mean, hey, cool. no, no, no judgment here, man. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And in AR, right? And then I can also sort of wear it in the in the in the real world and say like, hey, look, I'm kind of the same person, or you know, some avatar personality, or or whatever it is. Uh, you know, I think the coolest things are going to be when you have Apple glasses in the real world that can the where digital items matter. And honestly, that was part of the sort of driver for us in NFTs. Is wait a second, 
if the metaverse is real and things digital world and physical world will sort of be um, uh, blended, then it needs to be open, right? It needs to be something that everyone can have access to and 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 sort of permissionless in and out from, including developers, really. Like, because customers don't care. Nobody thinks, hey, I need this product to be permissionless. That word doesn't even sound good. Um, but developers really do. And if you have a platform that's open versus one that's closed, um, the one that's open is going to get a lot more products on it. And then consumers will care because, you know, one side has a lot of cool stuff, the other side doesn't. And so that's why we think, you know, open platforms are so important. Yeah, uh, I love that answer. Uh, this is a question I, I ask everybody, or I've, I've been starting to ask everyone. Uh, back in the early days of the internet, no one really imagined it becoming what it is today. Uh, Web 1 was mainly like a read-only type of environment. Web 2 uh, kind of ate, ate, excuse me, Web 1 uh, and created more applications and, and interactions online. And now we have Web 3 trying to eat Web 2 uh, with this whole ethos of ownership uh, and uh, the power of internet funny money. Do you imagine, like, what, what, excuse me, what do you imagine the web, uh, the downfall of Web3 being? Well, that's a good question. I mean, look, I don't think it's a, um, I don't know if I see it as a downfall. I see Web2 as more of a blip on the journey of, like, if you zoom out, right, beyond kind of just, 1990s to now if you look at sort of 1800s to now or sort of printing press to now it's just a it's a the sort of the idea that hey the vast majority of the world's information resides in three four or five platforms is a blip in time right the the trend right. is towards this and i think that that's what sort of crypto re puts us back on the trend line of of actually you know continuing to be more open decentralized you know so, so on and so forth and so um i think I think things will get layered onto that, and I don't know what those exactly will be. I mean, now you have the capacity to transfer information and value on on the network. You know, there'll be sort of maybe layers to to that. Um, I do think value will change. Right now, people just think of financial value, but people will think of access, utility, governance, voting as more than just the dollars and cents of it. Right? Like the the Uniswap price for the token might be ten bucks, but you won't get a thousand of them because 999 people won't sell because they need it to vote on something, right? Like there's yeah. there'll be things like that that'll be uh, more more obvious to people. And so I don't know if that's like beating the current Web three vision, which is right now very financial, very kind of decks and and trading and marketplace. Like that's all people only think about. Um, I don't think of it as killing or downfall. I think of it as layering on top. Sure. Yeah. I could agree with you. I want to go into the comments really quick uh, and bring some questions from the audience. So this one comes from Mac uh, Hamoud. Uh, what industry are you most interested in seeing evolve as a result of blockchain tech and NFTs uh, in terms of mainstream adoption? I mean, right now it's gaming and entertainment, right? And and by the way, I'll call out. It was the same for mobile. It was the same for social. Same for you know the thing that got really? PCs. In 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 uh desktop i mean the thing that caught pcs in bedrooms is in a lot of ways porn right and and sort of the the, the what people that's why people wanted a pc at home what got you know um a social into communities outside of uh universities i mean even in universities it was stalking you know uh each other looking at right. photos whatever and outside of universities it was farmville you know 50 plus of signups were being driven through farmville um in um in mobile 50% plus time spent in app was on uh, in video games. And Angry Birds is the thing you pointed to and say, hey, I want, that's why I need a touch screen because my 
Sony Ericsson has all my music on it already, right? And and you know, or whatever it was at that time. Um, yeah. So so I think it's it's the same catalyst all the time. It's always um, gaming, entertainment, um, that sort of thing. Cool. Uh, this one comes from uh, it's like a weird username. It starts with a G, but well, we'll skip it. Uh, at Roham, how do you see the competition between Flow, Ethereum, and Binance Smart Chain playing out? over the coming years. I know you mentioned a multi-blockchain world, right? But I guess in, in context of those three or those two against Flow, how do you kind of see that uh, play uh, in a few years from now? very different, right? The audience are going for are very different. I mean, Binance, its claim to fame is, hey, EVM, but more centralized and so much faster. Okay, great. I think that works for a lot of DeFi solutions that are okay with centralization. Um, I think Ethereum is on its own journey, et cetera. What Flow is trying to do is completely different, saying scalable consumer applications that need mainstream consumer user experience. If you could do that on Ethereum, people would have done that on Ethereum. Um, and if you could do that on, on Binance, like people would have done that. So, so I think that it's just serving different audiences and the products that and, and platforms that are being built on Flow are building network effects with that audience of mainstream consumer. And of course, many of them will go to Ethereum. Some of them will go to Binance. I don't know what else, what there is to do on uh, BSC other than DeFi, but like, you know, lots of our collectors have gone to Zedrun, right, which is on uh, Ethereum Layer 2 network, and they race horses all the time, right? Lots of our collectors have gotten into CryptoPunks. You can tell them half of my Twitter feed is, is you know, CryptoPunk avatars, and that's super cool. Um, that's not for everybody because it's, you got to get a wallet, you got to sure your money from one account into another, whatever it is, but um, we love it. We think it's growing the pie and raising raising the um, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, and it's sure. more engagement and, and activity for for users on blockchain versus cool. centralized platforms, which is where they're spending most of their time. Gotcha. Uh, this one comes from Sean. Filmmakers are looking at NFTs to sell their films via distribution. Most aren't including copyright. Do you think retaining ownership will have a negative aspect on NFTs? Um, for filmmakers specifically, I so guess, I, I yeah. I don't think people are going to sell the whole film as an NFT. Um, I mean, you know, I think streaming is the medium where consumers prefer to consume entire films. Um, they might want to buy a collectible that sort of gives them access to stream the movie at any time um, or to download the movie to, on their local device, et cetera. And it shows off that they were one of the first people to buy the movie. Like I think then they're buying the status that they were one of the first people to buy the movie rather than, um, sort of buying the movie, if that makes sense. And I think that's mm -hmm. where people got to separate the media from um, the, the collectible or, or the key that gives access to the media uh, um, in most cases. Amazing. Final question, Ram. Uh, ready? Here we go. Uh, so favorite entrepreneurs that you reference uh, when it comes to the day-to-day -day of how you manage teams uh, to your decision-making to any form of inspiration? Who are those like key entrepreneurs that come to mind, if any? I mean, lots of people. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's a sing single one, obviously. Um, you know, but people I learned a lot from, Sam Walton, really hands-on, sort of grassroots, just focuses on the, the brass tacks of it. You know, Steve Jobs never compromised. Um, Elon Musk never compromised. Uh, you know, sort of sort of Larry Ellison set a goal, target, you know, stay focused on it. Don't, don't, don't waver that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, and then sort of Bill Gates do do big things, good things with your time after, after you make your money, that kind of thing. So, awesome. Nice. Um, nice. Very cool, man. Uh, 
You've, you've been awesome. Thank you for being on Blockchain and Booze. One last final cheers to you. Bring me that. What was it? It was, it was scotch, whiskey? What, what was it? Lagavulin. Yeah, scotch. Here, oh, I got here. the whole bottle. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> cheers to you, man. Uh, I, I appreciate you being on. Really quick, where, where, where can people find you and learn more about you and everything that you're working on? Shout that out for a minute. Yeah, Roham G on Twitter um, is probably the best spot. Or if you want to join discord.gg slash flow, that's sort of where you join the community there or, or slash NBA Top Shot if you want to if you're gonna get in the maelstrom. Uh, but Roham <laughs> G on Twitter, that's the best place to find me. Amazing. Uh, and I'll kind of transition to the next section of blockchain and booze. Guys, this is my favorite part. The whole reason why I do blockchain and booze every single week. Go to meet.blockchainbooze.io. Uh, and we're transitioning into the networking session that starts right now at 6 p.m. Basically, the second you enter the platform, you'll be able to meet everybody else that's been watching live. You'll be distributed to random colorful tables where you'll be able to click from seat to seat, have your camera on, have your microphone on, and take shots and interact and laugh and, and learn more about everybody that's been watching live. So meet.blockchainbooze.io. When you get in there, turn on your mic, turn on your camera. Uh, and one last cheers, Rob. You've been great. Thank you for being here. Uh, and I'll, I'll quickly shout out Draper Gorin Holm. Uh, guys, we are a blockchain venture studio in fund. Uh, we got a lot of things going on beyond investing. We produce the best events in crypto and blockchain. Our flagship one being LA Blockchain Summit. We have our Global DeFi Summit coming up. We have the NFT Summit. We just had the Security Token Summit. We have Alon Gorin's What the Block and my very own. Uh, blockchain and booze. So outside of investing, we're very big on the community. We're very, we're very hands-on. So go to, go check out our events, go check out all the other things that we do. Uh, and I'll kind of transition into the networking moment right now. I already took Roham off stage. Uh, Roham, if you're, if you're still listening, feel free to join meet.blockchainandbooze.io if you have some time. Uh, we, we'd love to see you there. We'd love to, to hear from you. And I'm sure people would as well. Uh, so again, meet.blockchainbooze.io, go over there. Uh, and go go interact, go take some shots with people, go go meet everybody that's been watching live. Uh, once again, my name is Adam Levy. I'm the host of Blockchain and Booze, and we'll uh, we'll see you next week, Tuesday, 5 p.m., same time, same place. Guys, thank you. Cheers. This has been a production of Industry Pods in association with Evergreen Podcasts Network. Hear this and other industry pods at evergreenpodcasts.com, your favorite podcast app, or listen at industrypods.com for your number one virtual conference podcast experience.